from the Gospel of Mark, the seventh chapter. We've given the title of these reflections, the homily, we've given uh, as the title a brave and prophetic woman who we're going to meet in just just a moment here. From there he set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the lying child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Then he turned from the region of Tyre and went by way of Sidon towards the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. There... They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. He took him aside in private, away from the crowd, put his fingers into his ears, he spat and touched his tongue, then looked up to heaven. He sighed and said to him, Ephaptha, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one, But the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, He's done everything well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for the gospel. You ever been in a situation where you represent a lot more than just yourself? and in a way that makes it super problematic for you in the place that you have found yourself. The woman in our narrative this morning represents a whole lot when she walks into the room. And we'll need to just take a really couple moments here for a quick history lesson in order to understand what and just how much this woman represents. There was no love lost between Jews and Gentiles in these times. And though we still have trouble with this problem in our world today, uh, the level of animosity and resentment was particularly extreme in the first century. And that is, of course, when this interaction occurred in our gospel reading this morning. In the region where Jesus meets this woman... The Gentile population she represents was associated with the ancient city of Tyre. Now, Tyre was always high on the list when the Old Old Testament prophets would talk about the enemies of Israel, those who would persecute Israel, those who wanted to conquer Israel, torture Israel, add however many adjectives you want there. They were high on the list of Israel's enemies, and they were high on the list of the prophets' um, 
sort of running list of, of people that God was going to deal with in the great judgment. And in, the immediate, in the immediate context, at the moment when Jesus meets this woman, she is not only a representative of ancient Tyre, she's a representative of current Tyre. She's a representative of the wealthy Tyrians of her own day who were notorious economic oppressors of the Jewish people in the area. And and one more relevant historical tidbit, during the Jewish revolt against Rome in the late 60s, soldiers from Tyre massacred a great number of Jews in the city of Tyre and we think that that happened around the time that the Gospel of Mark was written, in the late 60s. So when this woman walks up to Jesus, she represents the enemy and oppressor in three ways, ancient enemy of Israel, Gentile in general, economic oppressor, and political tyrant of Jews in this region. This is what she brings into the room with her when she comes in boldly, driven by a desperate need of deliverance for her daughter. But what a refreshing contrast she is to the rejection that Jesus is experiencing right and left from his own Jewish religious leadership. This woman... I wish we knew her name. This woman comes into the room oozing with faith and hope. Hope that what she's heard about Jesus will be true. Which makes it, on the face of it, so very difficult to process Jesus' initial response to her. Right? I confess, all of this is more than a little bit confusing to me. Um, I will also say that I think I'm apparently in good company because when you read the way this text has been interpreted over the years, uh, people way smarter than me seem to be a little bit confused by it as well. When you're a PhD, though, you don't tend to say you're confused. You say... There are many, many different versions of interpreting this over the years, and these are what they are. And then at the very end they say, nobody really knows. Um, Is Jesus really wanting to put this woman down by what he says to her? That seems highly unlikely to the point of really being out of the question. I'm ruling that out. What's going on with the children eat first phrase? If if that's really what Jesus thinks, if the children of God, namely Israel, are supposed to be the only ones enjoying his presence, his healing presence right now, then why has he already been healing Gentiles? In Mark, he's already been healing Gentiles. Does Jesus know that this woman is going to have this profound word of wisdom about waiting around for the crumbs before she actually says it? Maybe. 
Hard to know exactly what's going on, really. But I think that the best clue that we get about this is in the way the story is recounted. It's clear from how Mark tells the story that the woman is given or set up by Jesus to have a platform in the interaction where she is given the position of leadership in the exchange. She is the prophetic voice in the room. In that voice, she foreshadows the great movement of the book of Acts where the children are fed first in Jerusalem, then come the Samaritans, and then come the Gentiles. But perhaps the most significant thing in all of this in the way that how Mark tells this story or recounts these events, perhaps the most significant thing in all of this is that Jesus allows himself, welcomes it even, allows himself to be nudged. Or perhaps, really it maybe looks a little bit more like Jesus allowing himself to be pushed, shoved even, by a Gentile woman. That is a wild image for a Jewish rabbi in the first century. A wild image. And I think this is one of these narratives that it, it, the payoff in it is lingering over it for a little bit and thinking about, okay, maybe the words here are not telling us the whole story. You know, how is it that she... It feels like she can take the risk to barge into that room. Does she know something about Jesus that makes her think, I'm not going to be turned away? What's the look in Jesus' eyes when he turns to her uh, and says that really was what was the proverbial statement about how Gentiles and Jews felt about each other in that day? It's a story to linger over, I think. Anyway... Mark, it's also important to remember that Mark is crafting this narrative. Um, Remember, he writes in the mid to late 60s. He's crafting this narrative for a tender and fragile church. The book of Romans has already been written by this time. And it's already dealing with these Jew-Gentile sort of, you know, tough tough relationships. In the first century church, Jews and Gentiles, that. You know, they were learning every week when they met together in worship how to live into relationships with each other. And it was awkward, to say the least. Uh, And it was also not without flashpoints of anger and misunderstanding. In a sense, I think the way Mark shapes this account is with the thought in mind that the tension in the room when this woman walks in there is Still the tension in the room. The room being the early church. The room being our church. The room being the United States, Chicago, Logan Square, Inglewood. It should be a reminder to us that before reconciliation can happen, there has to be a full confession of just how bad things are. 
one can't help but think here about the ease with which so many of us white folks like myself talk about how they're not racist. Really? When I was on staff at Rock of Our Salvation um, in 1990 and 91, 70% or so, 75%, 70, 75% African American, uh, 20, 25%, 30%, something like that. It would vary over the Sundays, uh, would be white. And uh, one of the jobs I had was to. Um, interact with the suburban churches and the churches all over the country who would send volunteer groups to help do redevelopment work in the neighborhood. And invariably, these volunteer groups would be, you know, from Kansas and Minnesota and Arkansas and Missouri and, you know, 100% white, wonderful people to come and give up their time to, um, to, uh, to do this work. But invariably, there would be at least one or two people in the uh, in the uh, volunteer group, who, who during the devotions, which were you know, devotions, would consist of of the folks from the volunteer groups, along with the folks in the community, many of whom were African American, uh, reading the Bible, praying together, and invariably, one or two people in every group had the same story at the end of the week. I came here, and I thought that okay, this is not going to be the uh, the college admissions exam, uh, you know, we're all hearing like if your kid's trying to get in college, don't uh, don't talk about the mission trip that they went on. Where I thought I came to help, but I really found out that it helped me. Okay, but well, there's truth to that, right? But I will tell you that you know, one or two people in every group would talk about how they had um, really thought that they were not racist people. Uh, they did not deal with the sin of racism, but what they came to realize during that week is that the reason why uh, they weren't struggling with racism is because they didn't know any black people, <laughs> you know, and that they didn't have any ongoing interactions with people who were very different than they were. And that's one of the themes that I think has been coursing through the service today is that, you know, until we're really willing to name things the way that they are, we're not going to experience the power of the Spirit in enabling us to live differently. And I think that's one of the things that Mark has in mind here when he crafts the story the way that he does. The, the tension in the room when this woman comes in is still the same tension in the early church. It's still the same tension in our world today, in our churches today. And only the Spirit of Christ can meet us at those moments of honesty and change our hearts from the inside out. Perhaps the turning point in the narrative is not the words we have before us, as I mentioned before, but the subtlety of Jesus' kind eyes and the tone of his voice that he used in saying the words to her. Did she feel that she was being empowered to challenge him? I think so. Is this about the vulnerability of Jesus setting up a situation where she is the one who is the instructor in the room? It looks like it. This is where it's also important to remember that the best traditions maintain that Peter, the Apostle Peter, was the narrator of Mark's gospel. Or rather, 
Mark's source as he compiled his material, I can imagine Peter saying something like this to Mark as he recounted this story. I can imagine him saying something just about like this. Hey, Mark, when Jesus said to her that thing about dogs, we were all nodding. We were saying, yeah, this woman doesn't belong here. She's unclean. She's defiled. Get her out of here. She has some audacity being here in the first place. And what are we doing in Tyre anyway, for crying out loud? But then she said to Jesus, even the dogs get the crumbs from the children's table. And Jesus said what he said to her, that he would heal her daughter just for saying that. And then he looked at us with that look of his, that look that meant there's something here for you to learn. And then Peter might have gone on saying, it's taking us a long time to learn it. Peter might have said, it's taking a long time for me to learn this, thinking about his own reluctance to accept Gentile fellowship, thinking about the many times that Peter had to be prompted and nudged by the Holy Spirit to take a step of faith towards Gentiles, and even needing to be admonished by the Apostle Paul about his hurtful inconsistencies regarding sharing table fellowship with Gentile Christians. Perhaps he said to Mark, I'm still struggling to take it all in. Still to this day, it's a struggle for me to love Gentiles. It's one of the refreshing things about the gospel, how it empowers us to be real about how bad things are in order to come to the realization that the only touch that will heal, the only way to have true reconciliation is through the power of God's spirit at work within us. When God is among us, God's love is so strong that people are drawn Sometimes without even being invited, as our brave woman is. May we be those who welcome the outsider. May we be those who craft our lives to be living invitations to those who have not yet tasted God's love in Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.